The reading today is Romans 5, verse 12 to 14a. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. But it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. This, St Andrews, is God's word. So last week, uh, we, I did a thing about Adam and Eve. Do they really exist? What was my take on it? So if you want to go back and you've always got those questions, you can have at least my view on that. And we had a look at uh, through Oregon, one of the early church people, and, and the debate that happened throughout the church in the last 2,000 years. Then I had a, a brief comment on evolution and my view of a hot. We should have a high view uh, of the historicity of the, the events of Genesis. And now this week, uh, um, that's you know relatively controversial uh, a belief or held or make people sound foolish if you say that you believe in an original primal peer called Adam and Eve. Well, just to if you thought that was crazy, well this week we're continuing with more crazy Christian beliefs. Original sin. I mean, is there not more popular view than that? The idea that we were born in sin. If you had some sort of fundamentalist preacher, I remember sort of hearing some of you like, "You are born in sin." I was like, "Who believes this? this is a horrible little baby? No, they're cute. I mean, you know." Uh, how can someone say such thing? What is original sin? And uh, uh, is it biblical? Well, yes, I do think it's biblical. Uh, but, of course, uh, sometimes uh, you know, good doctrines can be twisted. Uh, sometimes someone who presents the topic of original sin might present it as though they're addressed on this clerical gear, as if you are the sinners, but they have arrived. No, original sin means we're all <laughs> in the same boat this morning. And so we're going to be looking at this this morning. So... Okay, I want to have a look, and forgive me, we went back last time, centuries ago, it's my, my passion for church history. You, got, you guys must, must get tired of it, but I'm, I'm inflicting it upon you. Um, so four centuries ago, there was this huge debate, and it, it took place between Augustine and Plagueis. And the question is, why do we sin? Why do you sin? Can we just stop doing bad things and be good? Or is there other forces at work that stop us from doing the good we desire? And so Pelagius, now he was a dude living in the 4th century. And at the time, all sorts of geopolitical events were happening, the collapse of the Roman Empire. He was a monk living in a nice little monastery in England. And there he was, and then suddenly they, the England, because the, 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 the terrible uh, barbarians had crossed the Rhine, it had frozen over, and they were ransacking their way through. The, bar, the legion was pulled out of England. And then so the barbarians said, oh, England looks a nice place to take. So they took that. And so Pelagius was a refugee, and he moved around. But one of the things that was happening, and the views that Pelagius had, was that he had this very strong view that all of you guys here today can be morally perfect. You just have to decide to be good. This was his view. He was a, basically a fourth century version of a motivational speaker. So he would turn up and he would say this, you can, be, you can be the person you've always desired. Seven steps to a perfectly moral life. And he would come around and he was passionate. And he was saying he believed that Adam and Eve, they were just bad examples. You know, Adam, he was a bad dude. He screwed up because he had a bad will. Don't be like Adam. Don't be like Eve. Choose the good. Do it every day. You can do it. And, and so that was his big cry. And he went around and lots of people came and said, well, I'm struggling. Well, join a monastery, a real strict one with really rigorous stuff. Double your spiritual disciplines. And so just like 
the faith healers, you know, we had, um, you know, with Catherine's terminal diagnosis, we had, you know, XYZ person said, if you have enough faith, they'll be healed. Well, Pelagius was of the view, if you have a strong enough will, your marriage will be perfect, your children will be great, and you'll conquer every sin. So get out there and kick some butt to that sin and do really, really well. That was Pelagius for you. You can do it. And so this was the thing. And so he believed that, that in the Bible, Adam and Eve, they were just bad examples. And pretty much all the other people in the Bible were bad examples because they're always screwing up all the times. So just don't be like anyone in the Bible. Be good and get out there and do it. You can do it. So this was his, his gig. Well, Augustine, well, Augustine, he was a different person. So Augustine, he uh, had a mom who just loved Jesus and she was praying for him, believing that he could give his life to Jesus. But Augustine did not want to serve Jesus. He wanted to have a uh, life of hedonism and promiscuity. And so he had this really wild life, you could describe. Some people might describe it as colourful. Uh, Augustine describes it in his book, Confessions, as dark, sordid hedonism, materialism. He was gung for leather. And after this whole life, and during that time, that he started to feel God nagging at him through his mum's prayers. And so one time, he wrote in his journal, Oh, give me Jesus, give me purity. Just not yet. I'm having too much of a good time. But a little bit later, maybe. And so uh, that was uh, one of his famous quotes. I'm paraphrasing it there. You can find the original one if you Google it. And so after he came to Christ, and he, was, and he saw Pelagius' view, both based out of, of his personal experience and what he's seen in terms of the struggle that he had, that he couldn't will the good in his own life, he couldn't just shake off all those addictions and all those horrible thoughts and all those memories of the past. He couldn't just choose the good. And he thought, and he looked at the Bible, and he said, this isn't true, it's not even biblical. Sin has entered the world, and not only is Adam and Eve sinned, but when Adam sinned, our will has been changed, and we cannot just will the good perfectly. There is something that goes awry in our mind. And so Augustine and Pelagius were, were uh, theological enemies, and of course uh, Pelagius was eventually seen as, the, the technical term is heretic, back in the day. And so he said, you just can't just will the good. We need the power of God comes into our life when we repent, and God starts to give us new affections. He starts to, what is true, noble, and good, we start to love. But that can only happen by the power of God coming into our life. And to me, it seems pretty obvious. Any person, if you want to know how hard this is to be good, just try this week being perfect. Good luck. See how you go. Get back to me. I want a perfect score here, 100%, in your marriage with your children. All right? and, and, and I want the spouses to give the review on how they go, or the children, or the parents, or whoever else is around. They are the ones that review, not you. But ultimately, it would be God, actually, that's the reviewer. And so this was this thing. So Paul has this view, and, it's, and I know that uh, it's a tough view, this whole thing of being born in sin, but we'll get to that in a moment. That when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone. Why? For everyone sinned. Everyone except one person. Who is the only person whose, whose merit deserves eternal life? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, thank you. That's right. Yeah, not Alistair McNaughton. No, but Jesus. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. It was not counted as sin because there was yet no law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam, time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. That last little bit there is basically what, what he's getting on, is that death entered the world, everyone was sinning, but at the time of Moses, it was in black and white. But before it was in black and white, we had this moral compass, God's laws written in our heart. And you can find that, I did a whole sermon on that last year, you can pull that up. 
But the main punt here that Paul's getting at is original sin. When Adam's sin, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. And so what I want to look at this morning is original sin. And so I want to say this, original sin gives hope to losers like me, and perhaps you, moral losers. Original sin puts us all on the same level before God. Original sin gives us tools to respect others, and original sin explains the need for Christ's death. Now, I just want to say, this is just a technical point, Paul doesn't actually explain exactly and precisely how Adam's sin affects us all. It's very frustrating. It's like God, the sovereignty of God and the free will. There are some things in the Bible that's not absolutely precise, but for me, I see it as it was some like some sort of infection. It was some trait that got let loose after he'd done all of his physical descendants. We, did, we lost some capacity to choose the, the innocence to choose the good and the true and the noble. There was some disorder. We can choose good, but we've got that desire, and it ultimately starts corrupting us. And in the end, we often get sucked up into a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, so this morning, that's what we're going to look at: original sin. Four things, and, and I want to say these titles came from a cool guy called Trevor Wax, but the content is all mine. All right, well, mostly mine. Uh, original sin gives hope to losers like me. So Pelagius' view was that I can in my own strength be good enough, that I can by force of will consistently choose the good, the right, the noble. Now, the good news with that message is this. If I was Pelagius, I could simply say this. This is great. Choose the good today. That's a good message, isn't it? Get out there, choose some good, do it consistently. That's great news. The bad news is when I'm sitting in the pew, I'm going, but I'm not choosing the good. I'm, I'm failing. You know, I screw up. I have thoughts. I don't, I'm not on my A game all the time. I've got besetting sins as well. And Oh, you know, my kids, you know, they could, if they told you stuff, my wife and the others around me, I'm not making it. it would, it's, uh, who's turned up to church feeling anxious and stressed about the failings one has in one's life? I had when I was, when I was a young teenager struggling about the gospel. And, and I was seeing all these perfect people around me. Uh, but, well, but you know what? Original sin gives a loser like me hope. That actually, we're all on the same boat. When I look around, ah, they're a sinner too. That's good. I mean, at least we're all in the same boat. Welcome to the club. Pelagius' other view is, on one hand, it creates anxiety because people suddenly realize they're not making it, not in their own strength. And on the other end, it creates pride for those who actually think they are making it. They are, I know it sounds terrible, but there's something but I am good. I am smashing that out of the park. Have you met Christians like that? I've met some of them. That's, no, no, that's, that's sin things for others. I'm great. And I'm like, so Pelagius, that was his view. And was, well, I may I suggest that is pride, because in, the, in, the, in John's gospel, anyone who says that they are without sin is a liar. That is in the first, second, or third John. I can't remember which one of those letters, but it's one of them. You can Google it. And so Pelagius' prayer might be a bit like this. Lord, thank you for your word and the Bible and all of the commandments in it. I've got all of them. I'm reading it. And thank you, Lord, that by force of will, I'm not going to be like that bad example, Adam, and all those other losers and bad examples in the Bible. But I'm going to smash it out of the park today with moral perfection by my will alone. Augustine's prayer, as he's reflecting on his moral life of failures, was a little bit more like this. Lord, here I am again, asking for your forgiveness. Yes, I'm the failure that you always knew I would be. Because of original sin, God knew every sin that Augustine had done. Original sin... Plaguing is a creed for heroes who know they're morally good. Original sin is a creed for moral failures like one Alistair McNaughton. Those here with broken hearts who often who know that, yes, we know they're right from wrong. We've got the moral compass. 
but our selfish desires and our desires for instant gratification or whatever, we often choose the wrong over the right. Original sin helps us to know that without God's grace, without God's power coming onto us and freeing us and breaking those shackles and starting to change our thinking and our desires, that we will never be free from that original sin. So who's given their life to Christ? And after you've given your life to Christ, you go back to an old sin, and then suddenly you have a whole new level of shame, regret, <coughs> remorse, and a spiritual... <coughs> Who's had that experience? That is the Holy Spirit. It's like, but I can't... Why am I feeling this? I wasn't feeling that before, because I had a hard heart, and I was enjoying what I was doing. But after I'd given my life to Christ, it was like totally different. Oh, I'm hurting people. I'm betraying the Lord. Oh, I'm doing this. Oh, I'm shame. Oh, I feel like dirt and horrible. Oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. That, right? It's, it's the change of God's heart. But original sin gives hope to moral losers like me. Secondly, original sin puts us all on the same level before God. Is that I think this should be a belief for all that New Zealand churches should love. It's egalitarian. We have an egalitarian society, or a society that desires that in theory. In the 1700s in England, I know this sounds real crazy, but it's true, there was this belief among the English nobility that through good breeding, through the good education, through the knowing Latin and Hebrew and the fact that they were in the ruling class, that they were not sinners. They were pretty good. They were, they were, they were smashing at the park. They were like Palladiuses. And the sinners were, were the basic, the commoners, right? And so when one of the nobility would come and hear the gospel, and often this would occasionally happen, and they heard Whitfield or Wesley, they absolutely hated it. What? They? A sinner? And so this was one. And now, the person here didn't hear Wesley. This was not a sermon that she turned up to. It was a sermon from Whitfield. And Whitfield was giving a sermon in a church, and she turned up and heard the sermon, and she, had, and she was invited by her friend who was a countess who had just given her life to Christ. You've got to come to church and hear the gospel. Come along. So he brought her along the gospel. And she was like, what sort of crazy stuff are these evangelicals preaching? And this is what she wrote to her friend uh, after she'd heard the gospel. It is monstrous to be told that, that are you or I have a heart as simple as the common wretches that crawl <coughs> on the earth. The peasants, the commoners. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment as such at variance with high rank and good breeding. That was what she wrote. And she was like, I'm not a sinner. That's for the commoners out there, the wretches crawling on the ground. Me got it together. Well, may I suggest original sin puts us all on the same level before God. It says that the common wretches that she describes are made in the image of God are of infinite value. And it says the English nobility, they too are sinners in need of a saviour. And it also goes the other way because there are people who are like neo-Marxists. Back in the Marxists in the day, it was the landowning factory owners who were the oppressor class. And there was the oppressed and they tried to have the oppressed rise up and have a revolution. Today it's sexual minorities, it's different colour skins, it's the 1%. They've got all these different oppressor groups and all these different oppressed and intersectionality. You've got to know your, your gender studies and a whole bunch of other stuff to get this all, to know where you are on the oppressed or oppressor scale. What I want to say is original sin says we're all oppressed by sin, we all oppress others, and we can all be oppressed by others, and we're all in need of a saviour. It is egalitarian. We're all in the same boat in need of a saviour. May I suggest the Bible does say that those who are enriched in positions of power 
have more ability to exploit others, and that would be true as well. And that thirdly, original sin gives us tools to respect others. If we believe we're made in the image of God, but we also believe we're under the power of original sin, this means that Christians will be much worse than they should be, and everyone who rejects Christ will actually probably be better than I or perhaps you might think. So Christians, so this, this explains so much. I mean, it explains St. Andrews, the mess we are in as a church, and it explains all the messes that every other church in this nation is, right? Let's have a look. Original sin, we, original sin says that Christians, we have this moral code, we know what we're supposed to do, we've got all of this stuff here, but do we live up to it as Christians? No. All right, this is a great example. Hands up if you know of someone who does not like St. Andrews, came here and is angry and grumpy about this church and has left. Wow, there's not, that's surprising. I thought it would be every hand here. Right? There's a lot of grumpy people out there. And now that, people say, why is the church a mess? Why is there new scandals? Why do leaders fail original sin? Christians are not, we're not as good as we should because we're still under the sway of sin. Why is every church and Christian denomination messed up? Why, if Pelagius is right, all I have to do is simply say, will the good today be the perfect church, smash it out of the park, and we'll fill this place as people see our moral perfection in action. Wouldn't that be great? Good morals. Seven steps to being the perfect church. Let's do it. Let's do it, St. Andrews. Oh, yeah. Right? Imagine that. Well, original sin says, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Because before we die, before we die we're still going to be struggling with sin, and this church will be struggling with sin. But the flip side of that is every, it also, the Bible also says every single person is made in the image of God. Original sin does not destroy the image of God. It doesn't remove it. The, worst, the person who's worst offended you, the ones who's angry at this church, the ones who want nothing to do with Christianity, the ones we judge, they will be better than us in some respects. We can learn off of them. We humble our hearts because they're made in the image of God. And, and, the, and their sin that's in their lives does not destroy or totally remove the image of God. So what this should mean is if we really believe this, we should have grief at our own sin that we haven't yet dealt with. Are you grieving over your sin in your life? Are you brokenhearted at the things that are still tripping you up? You should be. This is a fruit of repentance. Second, humility. We have humility. Well, the person that's hurt you, offended you, the one you're struggling most in the world, they're actually just like you. Human beings made in the image of God, struggling with sin. And it should give us gratitude. Oh, what a, a saviour who's paid for us and given us freedom from sin. We are declared righteous. And even though we're struggling in this earth, we know we have eternity to come and that God's plans have been done and he loves us even though he knows what failures we can be. And lastly, original sin explained the needs of Christ's death. Pelagius' view that Christ was basically dying on that cross was this perfectly moral hero doing this great act. Well, for, you know, he was turning good people into even better. You can follow that example. For Augustine, the cross was turning dead people into alive people. They were dead in their sins. Their hearts were hardened. They wouldn't want to go to church. They didn't want to know God. They, all of the things like, this sucks. I don't want this. I want that life. And that's Augustine. And then God came in and he turned that dead life into a life. And he did it out of sheer mercy and he paid the ultimate price. The cross then gives us this forgiveness and then we can then walk it out. And the fruits of it are we forgive each other. We forgive those who wound us. 
and that we, and we have a cry of our heart that we will grow in the fruits of repentance. One of the, uh, the Pelagius at one end was we could live this morally perfect life. The other heresy at the other end was people loved the original sin. Well, if we're all sinners and we're all screw-ups and I'm going to keep on sinning anyway, then I might as well just double down on the sinning stuff and just double down because it's, it's, it's hopeless anyway. I'm just stuck in this life of sin. So, well, let's double down with it. What I would suggest is that this doctrine properly understood is if you have been touched by the love of God, you will not want to grieve your father anymore. And so, um, uh, to give an example, you know, we, we, you know, um, we went in, Catherine and I went in to this trip and this scan, and we had this little squabble on the car, right? And I felt so bad afterwards. Oh, why am I squabbling with my wife going to a scan? Where's terminal dinner, the diagnosis? I, have I grown any fruits of repentance in the last 20 years? Where is Jesus in my life? You know, that whole, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just me conversation. But anyway, that was the conversation that I, I sort of had. And now, now, if I was on that side, because we're going in to see the hospice this week, grand tour of the hospice, place you never want to have a tour of. And so as we're going in, I, if I was doubling down, I said, well, I had a squabble last week. Let's have a real fight this week with Catherine, right? That is not the attitude I should have. The attitude I have original sin is grief over my failures, gratitude for my forgiveness, and a cry for God that this week, by his spirit, through his power, I would reflect a little bit more of his holiness. But knowing... We're never going to be perfect, not by a force of will. And that should give us real humility when we see other people screw up. They're not different than us. Just another sinner in need of a saviour. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray that if there is someone here who is struggling under original sin, there's an offer for prayer that will be made afterwards, Lord. And I pray that you would call them up for that prayer that perhaps by your spirit there would be one person here this morning, maybe a believer, but struggling in an area, or maybe a person who's never heard the gospel. But Lord, I pray that, Lord, you might prompt a spirit heart today, even for prayer up front, or perhaps for some work in their lives later on in, in private. But Lord, we ask as a church that we would know the reality of original sin in our lives, but also, Lord, we'd know the depth of your grace and mercy for us and that we would work our hearts out to reflect the fruits of repentance in our life that we would cry out that you would change the desires of our heart so that what is true will become what we love we ask this in jesus name amen